This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Quick announcement before we begin. The Big Change Program doors are closing this Saturday, January 14th. If you haven't taken a look yet and you'd like to change your health trajectory and your destiny, those are big words, but I mean them. If you want to change your health destiny and they want 2017 to be the year you do it, check out bigchangeprogram.com. There's still time to sign up for the test drive. You won't get through very much of it, but it'll give you a sense of what the experience will be, and it will give you a good idea of whether you should sign up. Again, that's bigchangeprogram.com. And now to today's episode. So a lot of the interviews I do and a lot of the stuff I read about and write about is really in the realm of the individual, the personal, things we can do no matter what anybody else is doing, even if our families aren't eating the right way or exercising, even if our work environments are unhealthy, even if our communities are dysfunctional, ways in which we can become heroic. And by heroic, I specifically mean doing things that go against the default. Like anyone who stands up to the status quo and does something differently, in my mind, is heroic. And so we spend a lot of time talking about how to be that kind of hero, how to be a leader in your own life and for your family, and how to really trailblaze. But it's still within the context of a broken community and a broken culture and society. Today's interview really steps back from that and questions a lot of what I think what I focus on in terms of getting individuals healthy. And uh, my guest, Tad Hargrave, who has the charmingly named practice Marketing for Hippies, has been posting on Facebook for a while in ways that I have found very challenging. And so I wanted to get him into a conversation because Basically, the way he looks at it is we are all little plants, and what happens when the soil is unhealthy, when the soil is rotten, when the soil is infertile, when the soil is full of noxious chemicals and fertilizers, why are we focusing on fixing each individual plant when it's the soil that needs our tending? When Tad speaks of the soil, he is referring not just to our modern culture, but really to what our culture has been up to, the dominant Western culture, for the last couple thousand years or more. And that may seem like a really long time frame, but of course, in the sweep of human history, it's actually a blink of the eye. And the way it gets expressed in our country right now is in terms of something that Tad calls whiteness. And you might think this is going to be all about race and racism, and there's that in it, but it goes much deeper. And Tad's basic thesis is that those of us who identify as white have actually completely lost touch with our culture, with our roots, with our heritage, with our sense of place, with our indigenousness, and we are impoverished and in need of healing, and we can't do it individually. We can't do it in the absence of a collective effort to create a new culture. So I hope you will enjoy this interview with Tad Hargrave, who is one of my favorite elders, even though he's probably 10, 15 years younger than I am. He is an extremely thoughtful, compassionate, fierce, and courageous person. And I hope you get a lot out of our conversation together. So without further ado... 
Ted Hargrave, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks so much. So you and I know each other from a, a previous life. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, marketing and, and all that stuff. And, you know, you have been a huge influence on me because you are one of the few people whose marketing made me feel good, not just like in a, in a money sense or a business sense, but like mm-hmm. in, a, in a human being sense. And, mm. and I didn't feel icky. So that's why, you know, even I've, I've like stopped caring about marketing much and thinking right, about right. it. But I still follow you and your stuff because it had, it had some, some little vitamin in it that I found nourishing even when the, mm. the content wasn't directly uh, applicable to me. So I want, I want to thank you for that. All right. You're welcome. Um, the other thing is that for the, the, I think there are probably a lot of people who listen to this uh, podcast who are, um, you know, holistic practitioners of one sort or another. You know, this is sort of a health and wellness and happiness podcast. And so I do, I, you know, we're, we're not going to talk about any of that, but I do want people to know that they should go and, and follow you and subscribe to your stuff and, and sit at your feet and learn because it helps people. It helps good people do good things in the world. So before we get into the topic that we wanted to talk about, just uh, maybe a couple of minutes about your, your practice and how people can, sure. uh, can connect with you. You'd like me to say a few words about it? Yes, please. Yeah, so I have a business called Marketing for Hippies. Uh, you can learn more at marketingforhippies.com. And um, I guess I help hippies figure out how to market their stuff and how to talk about it because they're often very good at what they do but not really good at talking about it. Marketing feels really gross and uncomfortable for a lot of them and uh, understandably so because I think a lot of the ways that we're taught how to do marketing or <clears throat> the ideas we come up with on our own feel a little forced or contrived and and um, yeah, so just trying to help them figure out a better way of approaching um, other human beings in the world with, with what it is that they're offering and, and wrestling with this thorny question of, of livelihood and, and you know it's interesting because I, you know what we're talking about today I feel like a thread that connects both of these is so much of how things turn out are determined by the manner of approach we bring to them um, and I feel like that's very true in, the, in what we're going to talk about today and it's certainly the, the whole deal in marketing you know the way that we approach a potential client determines the response that we're going to get from them yeah, and and that's one of the things I wanted to to highlight is I think that you know the thread, the way you think about the world doesn't change when dollars or, or Canadian dollars uh, are are in the mix, which is a mm-hmm. sort of a, you know a, a beautiful congruency that I really mm. appreciate. Um, so what we wanted to what I wanted to talk to you about is you have you have been writing these beautiful beautiful long essays and I don't know if they exist mm-hmm. anywhere besides Facebook. Uh-huh. But uh, not yet, not yet. Yeah, it's a real pain in the ass to keep scrolling through your feed because you're very very prolific. And, and sometimes no. you know I think like oh you wrote that two days ago it's like twenty five posts down. So I, I would sure. I, I hope they they get up on a on a blog somewhere where uh, where folks can have very convenient uh, access to them. But it, it was, you, you have a whole series of these notes with the hashtag Dear White Men. Yeah. And the, you know, this, this, this idea that you have been developing, and I've been reading these for maybe a year or more now, is that, that this idea that, like, 
whiteness is something that those of us who think of ourselves as white or whom society thinks of as white need to heal from. And since this is a podcast about health and healing and wellness and well-being, I was just really fascinated to, to explore this with you. So I'm not even sure where, where, where to jump in, but I guess, right. I guess the first question before we just like jump right in is like, where did these ideas come from? Because, you know, we're, we don't have to, you know, we're privileged that we don't have to think about this stuff. So where, where did this start in your mind and, and become something that you have become so vocal and passionate about? Yeah. Um, uh, well, you know, it's funny. I mean, my initial thought was privileged, we don't have to think about it, but also impoverished, that we don't think about it. Um, you know, but it came from, I suppose, when... Um, that that man who just got elected, you know, in the United States, whose name I won't speak, um, when he was starting to ascend, probably uh, spring of 2016, I was seeing the emboldened response from a lot of white men and the incredibly poor ways that a lot of white men conducted themselves online as trolls, and particularly in conversations around race and gender and class and all this. And so uh, certainly around race and gender. And so I just felt this desire to start speaking to my own people because um, it, I think it just lands differently coming from another white man versus um, maybe a woman of color saying the same thing, sadly. And I was just so frustrated and, and felt like I had some things that I wanted to get off my chest. So I started writing that. But, you know, of course, a lot of that's informed by the past um, gosh, you know, 15, 16 years of my life wrestling with these questions of ancestry and uh, colonization of whiteness and and uh, and uh, this this mix of yeah, kind of ancestry work, anti-oppression, anti-racism, and um, trying to bring that forward in in a way that seems relevant to these times. Right. So I'm I'm picturing in my head some folks who listen to this podcast who who may be complete sort of newbies when it comes to like the you know theories of 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 race relations you know sort of like very well-meaning liberal white people like I have been for most of my life like not seeing, yeah, sure. not seeing color and mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. seeing kind of a little bit of uh, um, equivalency in in the hatred going back and forth um, so mm-hmm. you know maybe like what what was your earliest experiences of of thinking about race? Like, why, you know, yeah, you, I, I love that you said it's it's impoverishing as as well as you know, it, yeah. it, quote, privilege to not have to think about it. But like, when did you first start thinking about it? What 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 rubbed your nose in in the fact that this isn't just normal? Well, I was living in Santa Cruz at the time, working with this uh, group, Youth for Environmental Sanity. We were doing a number of gatherings called Youth Jams and bringing together young leaders from around the world. And we did uh, World Jam in 99, <coughs> went really well. And the next year we did another World Jam. I think that one went really well. So the third year we did a USA one that was more focused. And being a white guy from Canada, I mean, there's racism in Canada, to be sure. Um, and it's it's a different kind of beast there's something about the United States where it's a lot more raw, a lot more on the surface, um, a lot more in your face still, and the history is just different. Um, and so I just, 
you know, probably also because I'm a white man living up here, wasn't even exposed to the, the realities of it here. And I, um, it was a very diverse group, and just these issues came up in a way that utterly defeated us as facilitators. And, yeah, I just remember being crushed by it uh, and learning a lot around, you know, suddenly I was hearing these words around whiteness and white culture and white supremacy and white privilege. And then simultaneously people were saying, well, now, but own the fact that you're white. And I thought, uh, but every time you say that you're angry and the more I learn about what white culture actually is or where that came from, the roots of it, I was like, this isn't actually something I do want to embrace as a thing. And so that left me, you know, well, if I'm not white or if I, if that's not where I want to root myself, where is that? And simultaneous to this, a lot of my friends were getting in, into um, various indigenous things. And there was this group called Anaya, the Indigenous Non-Indigenous Youth Alliance. And all my, a lot of my white friends were going doing ceremonies and they were inviting me to come. And I just had no draw to it, <clears throat> no particular draw to other indigenous cultures. And and then I felt like, oh, God, I'm the most colonized white person. I don't even care. I don't even, I'm not even drawn. I'm not interested. So, you know, um, and, but then a few things clicked, right? One of my friends, Clayton Thomas Mueller, who's an indigenous activist, Cree activist from Winnipeg, and Puma Keyspace and Gona from Peru, both separately in their own ways were like, well, you've got your own indigenous roots. You should check those out. And it was just like one of those moments in my life where just, wham, everything clicked for me and it's like oh my god like the drumming the dance the story the song the music the folk tales all of that from my own ancestry i've always been drawn to i've always uh, and still to this day <coughs> very magnetized by and i haven't been drawn to the stuff of other indigenous cultures and it wasn't that i didn't respect it it was like i admired it so much and i was deeply envious of it uh, as i think a lot of you know liberal white people are you know we want we want to go to we want to go to the sweat lodge and yeah, and we want to um, smoke the pipe and have the have the mystical shamanic dream experience. Get the name and do the ayahuasca and you know all that stuff. And and uh, I didn't feel the draw to those things, but I definitely uh, I'm not a stranger to that envy of like, oh man, they introduce themselves so beautifully in their own language and they have their own uh, deep culture connected to the earth. So I just something really clicked and and I started learning Gaelic which is my own ancestral language that my great-grandfather spoke, um, but I certainly never heard. And So I began to just explore that, and, and uh, a lot of these threads came together. So that's, that's where the, the beginnings of it came from. That's, I mean, that's so beautiful, because I, I, I'm starting to understand what you mean by sort of the impoverishment. That, you know, oh, well, what, what's our culture? Well, you know, we have Starbucks. That's our church. Right? We can, right. Um, you know, we, what do we do for sacrament? We we buy shit, you know, <laughs> we collect it, and then when it, right. we don't like it anymore, we we give it away and feel good about ourselves. Um, but that that you that you got the gift of um, of the indigenous um, spirit from people who who had more access to it than you did, but you you still had it. Yeah. So, um, so what? What I mean, what was it like to to go back to your culture and having to learn it like a kid, you know, in school in Spanish one, you know, like this is this is mine, yeah. but it's not mine. What was that like? Um, it's beautiful. I mean, there's there's so much. I feel like I'm still just barely beginning to learn, but it just felt like food. It felt like spiritual food, as I was um, 
as I was reading about it. You know, of course, part of the challenge becomes like what's legit and what's not, and there's all sorts of new age books, and you start to realize that just the same way that people can kind of appropriate uh, and simplify uh, traditions of other cultures, you can do that. To, people can do that to their own ancestry too. So there's all sorts of <coughs> books that have, of questionable authenticity. And, you know, I started to read some of those and then kind of gradually found my way to something that felt more authentic and real. And yeah, it was such a, a nourishment. And, and this is the complexity of the place that we're at is, you know, maybe just for the folks who are kind of listening, the anti-oppression side of this, where this comes from, or the anti-racism side, yeah, it's, a, it's such a big story. But <coughs> fundamentally, what we've got is a situation where uh, if you're of European descent, anyways, we've got European ancestors. <coughs> Most of them did not leave Europe because um, it was a fun time. Uh, they didn't leave because it was a great idea. They they fled Europe. The ones who could afford to stay stayed. The ones who couldn't afford to stay left. And the ones who couldn't afford to leave uh, probably died. Um, but there was famine. There was war. There was poverty. You know. Um, all of the stuff going on, which drove a lot of people to North America. And when they arrived, it's just important to know that most of them were not considered white. I mean, legally, you can look in a lot of different tracts, uh, legal tracts online, you'll see references to, like, the, uh, the whites, the natives, and the Irish. Hmm. And so the Irish were not considered white, or the Scottish, or the Jews, or the Polish, the Italians, the, you know, <laughs> it's like the movie Gangs of New York, they were not all considered white at that time. White was specifically um, a kind of Anglo-British, Northwestern European thing, um, and it meant privileged. Basically, it was a it was a term to denote a certain economic, political privilege. And so, it's our ancestors were. It's not like they were white in Europe and they came over here and they were still white. Something happened after they arrived in North America, and particularly in the United States where they became white. There was a process. Um, and there's, there's a lot of stories and a lot of different phases of this, but one of the more dramatic ones was in um, the 1670s, I think it was, in the States, there were a series of rebellions where enslaved Africans and enslaved Europeans and enslaved um, you know, Native Americans were coming together to rebel because they all saw they were being screwed by the same people, this elite economic class. And there was finally, there were like 10 rebellions, and the last one almost burned down Jamestown. And the elite realized, we have to do something about this to, because um, we can't kill them because there's a labor supply. We can't, um, and we also vastly outnumbered. You can't take their weapons away. Some of them defend the frontier. You know, so it's like, what to do? And the approach that they took was a divide and conquer based on skin color. And so the idea was, okay, um, you can be white too. So they say the Irish, you can be white. But what that fundamentally meant was they traded their culture for economic security. So their kids would have to go to an English school, learn English. And of course, you know, you're, you're a poor Irish uh, parent. You don't want your child to starve to death. You see that that's where it's going. But, you know, kind of if you become white, if you stop organizing and resisting, your child has a chance to live and otherwise they might die. So, of course, so many European parents, you know, it's not like this was an overnight thing or uh, probably an explicit conversation that happened, but this is the process that began. And so what's come with that, so it's just important to know that whiteness has its roots in privilege. That's where the term comes from. Um, 
and you know, in terms of North America at least. And so as it got expanded, what was expanded were a set of privileges, and not in an in a abstract sense. I mean, like owning property, the ability to marry, the ability to pass on inheritances, you know, all sorts of these privileges. Um, and so when people say white privilege, that's where it comes from. And what it means is that today the culture was built based on that in North America, and particularly the States. It was built on a very white supremacist, to put it bluntly, culture, where um, if you were white, you and not to say that people who are white or were white were not uh, disadvantaged. It's just that they weren't disadvantaged because they were white. The whiteness was not the cause of their disadvantage, whereas you can absolutely say that many people of color are disadvantaged because they're people of color, you know, because of the color of their skin. And so you get this privilege that comes out of it, which is the whole conversation around white privilege. But what also came out of that at the same time, the, the, that blow of whiteness created this fracture, and on one side of the fracture was privilege, and the other side is this poverty. So whiteness, the entry into the, the, uh, this club of whiteness um, simultaneously gave people of European descent economic and political privileges, but cultural and spiritual poverty. Those were both dealt at the same time, which is why you have this immense uh, longing for, in so many you know, liberal progressive white folks towards um, indigenous culture. And there's kind of this self-hatred that started to happen. I mean, there's a general misanthropy and hatred of humans, I think, um, amongst many white people in this culture in particular. But specifically, there is... Um, for a lot of white people, there's a sense like, well, I look at what white people have done to the world. Mm. And so nothing good could come from where I come from. It's all bad, you know. There's no sense uh, that we were ever indigenous. And part of the reason we think that is whiteness, because whiteness is a amnesia. Whiteness is a, you forget that you came from a particular place. You forget that your ancestors were at one point just as indigenous as any brown person in the world ever was. You know, um, so we do come from that, and they have their own traditions. And, you know, and of course, the challenges, the colonization that happened to our European ancestors happened thousands of years ago, you know, or longer ago uh, in a lot of cases than, than many of the indigenous people today. So it's still there, but it's further away and often less records of it left. And so this is this poverty of, you know, um, most indigenous cultures, for example, would initiate their young men and women at a certain age, kind of around puberty. And there'd be very specific, ornate, well-laid-out uh, processes to do this. And it's very hard to find that. You know, in the Celtic world, um, you know, I met with an old storyteller who told me some stuff, but it wasn't very much. There's just not a lot that's left. And it's certainly not practiced anymore. So there's this big gap, and of course that creates this big spiritual hunger and a sort of self-hatred in white people, which is what drives the um, this grasping at other cultures. There's this kind of, the, the two sides of it shows up as with whiteness. It's either the self-hatred or a self-glorification, you know. And so the white supremacy, this alt-right neo-Nazi thing that we're seeing is the, the glorification of whiteness. Um, in a way that is very loose on the history and uh, steeped in whole notions of race, which is a whole other thread here. But on the other side, you've got this self-hatred, 
you know, of a lot of progressive people, just like, oh, as if white people are the worst thing in the, in the world. And, yeah. and, but they're two sides of the same coin. It's the same thing. Like, the, 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 uh, those were both brought into existence by the presence of whiteness. You know, whiteness created that you either have to, like, kind of puff yourself up, because there's just not a lot there. There's not a lot of substance. There's so, a culture, but it's this culture of privilege. So, so yeah. I mean, what was, like, where, where did it come from if, if everybody's traded their culture for, for whiteness or everyone who could, um, I mean, at some point the, the, you know, the, the Northwestern Anglo British Europeans had a, had a, had a culture too. Sure. Like, what do you see as kind of the, you know, the core operating system of, of whiteness and how how did it like take hold in the first place? Like somebody, somebody must've started, started it, you know? I think this is one of the most important questions we can be really wrestling with in these times. How did we get here? How is it that, yeah, where did, where did this start? I mean, if we were all at some point indigenous, who's the first person who was like, I don't want to be indigenous anymore, or, or was it like that? Or was there some <clears throat> trauma or cataclysm that happened that <clears throat> shifted things and started this you know, strange spiral into Western civilization and colonization and, <clears throat> and everything, and and what is it that we might learn from that that might show us how to appear differently and how to um, belong to a place again and how to approach indigeneity uh, again in the places that we live where we are now because certainly we can't go back. We can't go, you know, there's, n- there's, no, there's not a lot of places I could go to, if any, where they're like waiting for me. You know, I don't know if there's any place in the world yeah, like, like back in Scotland. Can, can we be? Can we be ever be indigenous again with iPhones? It's um. Well, you know, it's interesting when you. Um, it's good to look at trees, I think, for this, um, because trees, if you uh, want to get an old growth forest, it takes about a thousand years, because what you're looking at is you've got to plant the first set of trees, they have to grow up, and they've all got to die, you know, because there's something that happens when they die. Like, first of all, when they die standing up, certain birds or insects can use them in certain ways, and when they die, they decompose, there are certain processes that happen. You know, I was just in Iceland, and my understanding in Iceland is there used to be a lot more trees than there are now, but the one thing I did not see while I was there at all, first of all, not many trees, but because uh, I think a lot of them were deforested probably for grazing and for um, for wood, for the kilns and, and the, for forges to make metal. Uh-huh. You there? Yep. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm hearing a weird uh, something. I, yeah. I have no idea what it is. It, uh, let's, yeah, let's, yeah. let's assume it will go away. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm not convinced it will. It's gone, it's gone on my end. Oh, okay. <laughs> right, um, well, they're they're listening. They know we're onto something, and they're trying to. Throw yeah, it's us a good, off our it's, it's a good sign. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, anyways, there weren't a lot of dead trees there. Uh, I don't. I don't even think I saw one. So this is what has to happen for you to get an old growth forest. Trees have to grow. They have to die, and then new trees have to grow. You know, that's got to happen at least once that cycle. And I feel like there's the same kind of thing for human culture. Um, 
you've got to be born in a place, <laughs> die in that place. Um, there's got to be generations of people with, though, a certain attention. So I feel like it's, it's a, I don't know if it's a thousand years. There's a similar kind of time scale, though, in my mind. Um, so it's like, do you and, will you and I ever become indigenous in a functional way? I don't know. But I think the whole trying to grasp at how do I get my indigeneity, how do I become indigenous, is not separate from the same kind of grasping we see to other cultures. It's not the same as this, like, this whole culture has become this um, worshiping at the altar of the self, you know, in a culture that is, that is um, <clears throat> questioning religion of all kinds and, you know, atheism on the rise and, and questioning all the spirituality, all that. Um, there's, still a, there's still a monotheism that exists, which is the self. And that's what we, we worship. So that's still at play in this question of, like, how do I become indigenous? You know, um, because the redemptive move <coughs> is not that we try to become indigenous. The redemptive move is that we try to create the conditions that might make it possible for the people who come after us to become indigenous. It's not that we, we're, we're not going to see the old growth. Mm. You know, we, we plant the seeds of the trees that are going to take a long time to grow, like hundreds of years to grow. And then they have to die and spread their own seeds. And then, you know, so we're, in my mind, we're just like so, as, as white people in North America, so far away from uh, any meaningful indigeneity. And also, often the question is still framed in an individual sense. Like, how do I, as an individual, become indigenous? And I think you'd be hard-pressed to find um, a real indigenous person who would see it in those terms, that that's something you could be by yourself. Yeah, well, by, by its its nature, you know, it's like there's there's old Gaelic proverbs that it's just like, uh, what has one goes like, which is like a person by himself is not a person. Uh-huh. You know, most people of like Scottish Highland Gaelic descent would identify with themselves first as Gaels and then second as an individual. And we don't have that. There's not a sense of village. So it's like. There's so much that needs to happen of like rebuilding a sense of village, a sense of genuine community that's not a network, that's not a neighborhood, that's something deeper than that. Um, and so I, I feel like we're the ones who are, even in talking about it, this is part of it. Um, even in, but, and this is part of the thing, like the, the talking about the poverty that we're in the midst of is not nothing. It's the thing that starts waking up some hunger where people are like, oh, yeah, something is missing. And what are we going to do about that? But if we don't talk about it, if we don't lament it, uh, if we're not willing to kind of grieve openly about the incredible poverty that we're facing, um, and we don't deal with it consciously and directly, it's going to come out in these other ways of starting to grasp at it from other cultures or try to cover up that hole uh, with drugs or sex or money or all the ways we do it in this culture. So before we go further, and there's so, there's so many beautiful things that I'd like to ex- explore with you. Before we go we go further, one of the things that shocks me is after when I read one of your posts, and then to read the comments of oh ne- never read the comment section stay <laughs> away from the comments. Section. Well, you got some you got some great people in there, and yeah, yeah. you know sometimes I want to read the comments because like I click comment because I want to say something, but like the arguments you have with with people. Yeah. You know, who are like, but yeah, what, what about all the great things that European civilization have done? What about Mozart? And, and I think, you know, a lot of those people are really coming from very sort of curious, innocent places. Um, 
And so I like I take like take a little tangent now. Like like what when what are the big um, obstacles or, or objections? And I'm like now I'm trying to be thinking like a marketer. Think about people who are listening to this who maybe are getting a little bit upset right now. You know maybe they see right. themselves as white and they're like this guy's you know shitting all over everything you know that's that's sort of normal right. and good and cool in my life. Can can we kind of like look at those and maybe diffuse and bring that person, you know. Back, back in. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, <laughs> can we invite? Sure. So we, we invite them back in. Yeah. Well, the um, whew, there's so much to say here. One of the things that we've got to name and talk about is race as a as a construct, because <clears throat> of course, biologically, scientifically, in pretty much every way you can mean it, there's only one race of there's the human race. That's it. There's not. Black people are not a different species. Chinese people are not a different species um, or, or race. They're, we're all still one human race. And somewhere, you know, this is not where I've done as much research as I'd like, but certainly this notion of race, that there was the, the Negro, the Mongoloid, the Caucasian, you know, um, that notion of races emerged. And, and woven into it was this notion that the, the Caucasian was the superior race, the most beautiful race, the, you know, and all sorts of generalizations. You know, black, well, they're the strong ones, and Chinese, well, they're the, the Mongoloids, they're the smart ones, and, you know, but this notion that there's this Caucasian um, European race that has this special kind of genius and has contributed so much to the world. And so, um, and then that has been really wrapped up with whiteness in particular. And so you'll hear people um, like some of these, you know, white supremacists today saying, well, Europeans have contributed so much to this culture. Uh, but then the next breath will be like, yes, it's the, the, if the white people have this, you know, so European and white get conflated. And yet, of course, even today, there are a lot of white people in Europe who would not identify as white. They would identify as German. They would identify as whatever their particular country is. Um, but so those two have been conflated. This notion of race, that there's something essential and inherent in, in white people that is different than, you know, is such madness. Because, of course, that ignores what about the contributions of the Moors and the Muslims and the incredible amount of, you know, science that they brought in. Uh, we don't learn about that, but, man, the contributions from that side, there's, there's a whole lot to look into. Um, what about the from China? They invented paper, paper. <laughs> <laughs> the basis of the, the wall of China. Come on, you know, there's like, the, there's so many contributions. So it's like, let's not dismiss these other cultures as if they haven't brought anything to the table. And it's all been Europeans. But um, sure, yeah, there's been a lot of wonderful stuff from Europe. And I think it's important to be asking, and at what cost did this come? You know, it's like, who built Greece and who built Rome? Was it, was it Plato? Was he out there lugging all those pillars and setting them up himself? No, it was slaves. You know, slaves have always been the builders of civilization, this unpaid labor. <laughs> and so this civilization, yes, I love Mozart as much as anybody, and Bach, you know, I could listen to all day. And, and the civilizations that they came from came at enormous cost to the planet. You know, they came on the backs of a certain amount of colonization, and of Europe, you know, and it started there, <clears throat> and then Africa, and 
um, you know, the extraction of resources from those countries to feed the appetite and the wealth of Europe. That didn't come from nowhere. It's, it's like there's a strange idea. It's like, oh, well, that wealth just came from their minds, you know. This is the genius of Europe. Like, I saw an interview with a fellow, one of these white nationalists, and he was just like, oh, yeah, well, it's the genius of Europeans that we came up with all you know. But it's like, yeah, well, slavery was an idea. But he was just kind of looking at it as a business model. He's like, well, morally, no, and I don't think that made sense. Um <laughs> It's like, well, you know, we we could we should have found another way. We could have found another way. It's like, oh, you're going to find another way to get the cotton, huh? That wasn't black people. You could have done it, you know. Um, and this idea that the labor didn't count, because what counted in his mind was the genius of, uh, you know, in the mind. And there's a whole lot to say about this separation of mind and body. And but um, <laughs> it's yes, all, you know, we've connected, isn't it? Yeah. There's, there's like there's like no. There's like no thread that doesn't lead to kind of the the deepest issues of what it means to be human. Yeah, well, and this is the thing is that uh, whiteness is the thing that keeps us from that. Whiteness is the thing that keeps us from ever having to look at that. Um, you know, we just get to say, well, I'm white, and the, and we don't get to. But whiteness is such a recent construct. It's such a new thing. This is not something that goes back to Greece or Rome. You know, they would have probably been appalled at this notion of whiteness, of like having no sense of like particular culture, except that, you know, it's funny, like, is it a culture or isn't it? And, you know, the, the answer is, is yes, you know, uh, it's it's both. It's like not a culture in any meaningful earth-based way of culture. It's a culture, that, something that sustains life, um, like the, you know, cultures of bacteria in our gut or in kimchi or, or it's not that kind of culture. But it is culture in a way of distinguishing characteristics, um, and this certain culture of, um, of that comes from privilege. You know, uh, that's that is this white culture, and of course it's shifted and changed over time. But um, it's the the existence of whiteness is what keeps us from you know this question of like, could we ever become indigenous again, or could our descendants ever become indigenous again? Um, not without contending with this this whiteness, which is this kind of shroud that we're we're covered in that you know keeps us from seeing where we came from. So something that's surprising me about this conversation is how much of of it is kind of environmentally based, because it's not right. something that I hear a lot in sort of you know the sort of racial justice communities, but almost ev- everything you've talked about has has come back to like this relationship with the earth. And we're yeah. you know we're starting to you know we're starting to see it now a little bit with the with the um, you know the heroic um, movement at Standing Rock. But what's what is yeah. what is the connection between you know this whiteness and racism and the yeah. way we um, you know think about and exploit the planet? Well, I mean, part of what I would say is is this notion of the planet and the Earth becomes part of the problem because then it's all the same thing. You know, uh, and certainly there's that, and that's probably it's probably a fine place to start of being connected to the earth in general. But you know, I, I don't think you find a lot of indigenous cultures where they would talk about it in that way. They would be talking about a connection to a particular place in the land, you know, a particular piece of land. Uh, that's so interesting because, partic- like, I, you know, you hear all these these you know stories about like each individual, each each indigenous tribe, their name for themselves is like the people. And I always, right. I always thought of that as sort of like 
cute and quaint because they didn't know that there were other people. And I'm just realizing, like, that's my, that's my default assumption. You're saying that, you know, having a direct relationship with your part of the world and, and you know, your tribe is actually a prerequisite for, for belonging. Yeah, well, you know, some of them might not have actually known. Some of them might have been a little isolated and kind of been like we're the people. But, um, and perhaps that also came from a sense of uh, we are, uh, maybe another way to say it would be human. You know, we're the humans. Mm. And seeing themselves in that because they were in a much wider web of connection, of life, of, you know, uh, their ancestors and the land and the animals and the plants, all of which were alive and all of which were, you know, relatives and not resources for them. And so it doesn't surprise me that most of the name would be like, we're the people, uh-huh. and we're the humans, we're the, you know. But, yeah, to me it starts with a relationship <coughs> to a particular place. You know, because, again, most indigenous people, it's not like they're just like, yeah, we came out of the earth in general. A lot of them could point to it. It's like, and here's where it happened, on this rock. Or, you know, the gods live on that mountaintop over there. Uh, and there are very particular names and places, and the languages um, that exist came out of those places. We're out of the land. We're often um, mimetic, meaning, you know, uh, informed by the land, <laughs> trying to replicate the sounds of the land in your language, and so a particular place would have particular sounds. And um, So it's it all comes back to this relationship to where we live and the land that we live on. Of course, you know, I mean, and you know the scene that we're in, like what gets lauded is this laptop lifestyle, meaning location-free, uh, get to live anywhere. You don't have to belong to any place. And, of course, the, the, the scorpion's tail of that, the shadow side of it, is the immense amount of loneliness it brings. Because now you don't belong anywhere. Like, yeah, you could just grab your laptop, go to any city, and that's so fun for a while. And then you realize nobody knows you. You walk down the streets, nobody sees you. And so much of, you know, living in a culture is you're being seen all the time, recognized all the time, affirmed all the time, um, that you're really there, that you're not a ghost. And so we've got this culture of people who so many people feel alone and isolated and nobody ever sees them. Nobody says hello to them. You know, they've done studies of grocery stores versus farmers markets and 10 times more conversations happen at farmers markets. And it's possible you could go to a grocery store in a big city, nobody even makes eye contact with you. Nobody, you know, there was a a young man in uh, the East Coast of the States and we had this (coughs) big talk because he was working with young men around helping them to believe in themselves. And I said, you know, the the challenge here is this, um, that's the poverty of this culture showing up, that there is a course teaching young men to believe in themselves. It's not a sign of our wealth. It's a sign of the immense poverty uh, of our times that that would be needed because, you know, I was just finished a book by um, Sabon Fusome called uh, Spiritual Intimacy and, um, or the Spirit of Intimacy. <coughs> and she writes about her tribe, which is, I think, the Dagara people in, in uh, Africa, West Africa. And she um, speaks about how, you know, when, when a woman would become pregnant, I mean, first of all, you know, so many indigenous people would be praying for the next generation. They'd be praying for, you know, send somebody with a solution to these problems we have. And there's a woman get pregnant. And the shaman would, at a certain point, interview the, um, this, this new being 
that was in her belly, this new human that was coming to the world, and would ask them, like, why are you here? Why are you coming? What are you here to bring? What are your gifts? And the, the mother would be speaking for the child, and she'd be, you know, saying these things, and they would... You know, the, the, when the, the, I've heard of other cultures, when the child was born, they'd sing a song. That was sort of their song. And then when it was the certain markers in the life of the child, that song would be sung again. And when that person would die, they would sing that song to them as they go. Um, that yeah, as the child was raised in so many of these cultures, all the elders would be paying immense attention. All those old people that the, these young kids were running around thinking were just lazy and not doing anything were noticing every damn thing and would notice like, oh, uh, what kind of things are they interested in? And, you know, the storytellers, when they're telling a story, would notice which parts of the story different kids lit up at. And that would tell them certain things about the child. And, so, you know, you'd have this whole culture based on really recognizing who was there and fostering them in a direction of their gifts. And, and uh, so they didn't end up as a, you know, um, doing the wrong thing. So that somebody who's supposed to be a hunter wasn't doing beadwork. And somebody who wanted to do beadwork wasn't doing the farming, or you know, um, mm. you know, or or in, in some role <laughs> that didn't necessarily make as much sense for them. Uh, but of course, everyone is probably involved in food and farming. But you know, you so you'd have this thing, and and so this notion of like being believed in um, just was so present. But the believing in it's not like today. Believing in it is like I believe in you. You're great. I encourage you. Versus believing in as as um, you're here, you're consequential. You have an impact on us. What you do and what you don't do matters. And um, believing in that you were put here by the ancestors with particular gifts to do something, and we believe in that. So you know, it's like it was so deep, um, and we lack that, of course, uh, utterly in this culture. And um, because we don't really have this deep culture, you know, this kind of old growth culture. We don't have it. We don't have these villages. We don't have the, um, we've got neighborhoods at best. But it's like, where are the elders here? Who would notice those things? Um, and, um, you know, and of course, all of this would be informed by the land. All of this would, so many, you know, indigenous stories are, it's of course about the land and what's in the land and what that tells you about how to live. And so that the whole culture would be modeled on nature, um, not the other way around. You wouldn't be trying to <coughs> model nature after your culture. You'd be trying to follow that lead. And, um, and uh, yeah, so it's um, to, our, to our detriment that we don't. And when you have something like that whiteness, like whiteness that appears, it has you forget that that was ever the case, that it was ever that way. And so we get this sense, I mean, whiteness is just kind of one of the modern manifestations of this amnesia of, um, that has us think, yeah, always been this way. And in fact, people live like this all around the world. You know, um, I've been studying with uh, Stephen Jenkinson from uh, orphanwisdom.com, and he, um, <coughs> he worked in the death trade. And of course, there's such a fear of dying in this culture. And the, the assumption is, well, everywhere you go, they're scared of dying. You know, or the Okanagan, they don't have a word for rape because it didn't happen to them. It didn't exist. But, of course, in modern culture, we'd be like, well, great. that happens everywhere. And so we do have these assumptions of, like, well, yeah, it's always basically been like this, give or take. Humans have always acted like this. Humans have always been so neurotic and selfish. And that's not necessarily true. But um, if we don't know where we're from and we can't trace it back, um, and even wonder about, like, where did it start to go wonky? 
where did where did we start getting separated from the land? Um, it's hard to find our way back. So, or not even back. Back is the wrong way entirely. But it's like to know where we're at in the story. It's like there's a much bigger story at play than we're aware of, and it's good to situate ourselves in that story to know how we want to proceed. Because it's not like when I say going back, it's it's so terrible. Because it's there's not like a, a place to go back to again. There's nowhere in Scotland that wants me to come back. That's like waiting for Tad Hargrave to reappear <laughs> with prophecies about it. And there's no, um, <clears throat> and it's not like what I would go back to. You know, when I went to the Gaelic College on the Isle of Skye, it's not like that's the same culture that my Highland ancestors lived in. You know, the the effects of colonization are so deep. The Presbyterianism, uh, the, you know, the death of uh, the religion that's happened there, the um, alcoholism and depression that exists there that would not have existed that is fully from a colonized um, existence where you start to believe how you're uh, being seen by the colonizer. They see you as inferior and you eventually take that on. You know, it's like, and there's so much beauty there too, but it's like, the point is it's not what it was. So this idea of going back, it's like, well, we're, I mean, I don't have a time machine, so where could we even go back to? And so it does become this question in the places that we live how do we uh, belong to that place? Gosh, there's so there's so much there's so much there. Um, let's mm-hmm. can we talk a little bit about uh, Stephen Jenkinson's work? Uh, yeah, I'd love to. I, I heard of him through you. Um, and, yeah. You know, watched the the documentary that was made about him, uh, which whose name escapes me at the moment. Uh, Griefwalker. Griefwalker. And then he came to our town and did a did a one day workshop, which which was nothing like a workshop. <laughs> it was you know <laughs> it was a uh, a wise and and very cranky elder just t- you know mm-hmm. telling telling it like it is. Um, so he you know he, I guess he he worked in the system for a long time, kind of doing quote palliative care, teaching people how to take care of dying people, and um, teaching people how to begin to approach their death and. Something happened, and he, you know, if, if anyone is indigenous, God, he is, you know, from, from like, you know, at least on a, as, as much as one person can be, kind of, you know, wearing skins and caring for the land. And what, what attracted you to, to, his, uh, to his teachings? What, what were you looking for um, that he could provide? Well, um, I'd heard about him. A lot of my friends had talked about him for years knew I was into ancestry and oh he's really into this and into European ancestry you'd really love it and I don't know if I was just young and smug and like figured I got it all figured out or but people were like I was like well what are his workshops like they're like well you just get kind of talk so I was like well, for how long well, like all day I was like any <laughs> breakout sessions partnership and like no so I was like I don't I'm not interested and then I, I almost died I was almost killed um, by um, a certain situation when I was in England and it and I, I was right there. Like I, I was aware I could have gone, and it was terrifying. And I just realized <clears throat> I've, I'm not prepared for death and dying at all. And that had me start to wonder. Okay, well, what? And I remembered oh, this, this film, Griefwalker. So when I got home from the UK, that was one of the very first things I watched, and something in it just really moved me deeply. And I um, signed up for the school right away, pretty much immediately. Uh, sight unseen with no <clears throat> sense of what it was going to be about. and But it was interesting because I remember the first night I sat there, um, 
everything he was saying is again felt like food for me um you know being fed after a long time of, of starving and he um so much of me growing up is like I didn't want to be older it just seemed like such a <clears throat> such a rip off you know I, I either imagine myself becoming like some burnout at the bar or some new age floaster like you know who's like 60 years old still going to burning man doesn't have his shit together or a monk or like a mainstream like i just couldn't see a model of getting older that particularly drew me and so then it was terrifying to get older and then be like and i'm gonna die and i'm not i don't want to and so yeah when i just saw him talk i was like man something like that um and so there's been this real hunger in me and i think for for most of us for an elder or elders in our community and in our midst um, we don't really know how to be around them. I think it's part of the problem. Uh, one of the things Stephen talks about is our um, whether or not we have elders in our community isn't actually so much about whether they're there or not. It's primarily a function of our capacity to even have them in our midst. You know, if they're there, would we even pay attention to them? Mm. You know, and certainly I was a part of the kind of anarchist activist scene when I was younger, and there weren't many older people there, and I think. Because if they would show up and try to share some wisdom, they were immediately accused of being ageist, <laughs> you know, and kind of pulling rank and who do you think you are? And we're all equal. Um, and of course, we've seen this bizarre flip in this culture from any traditional culture I've heard about was primarily run by the elders, meaning they called the shots because they'd seen more, you know, and, and they were a little more level-headed about things. And then you had democracy, this this uh, bizarre experiment, that would say, okay, the elders and you, 18-year-old punk, uh, you're all, you all got the same influence in this. Uh, but yet at least that's kind of spread out. So you got, you know, the elders still have <coughs> a lot of influence. But a strange sort of saying that the, the, the youth, you know, know as much as, as the elders. And then now you've got this world of social media that is primarily young people wielding all of this social influence. Um, so we've seen this flip from like the, the heaviest influencers being the elders to young people. And I don't think that's a healthy thing. Um, and not that young people don't have a place and the voices don't need to be heard because that's certainly true. But, um, you know, it's like a Michael Mead once said, probably quoting somebody else, but you know, the, the purpose of elders is to hold the ground steady while the youth go wild. Uh, but somebody has got to be holding the ground steady. Uh, there's gotta be these elders and yet we don't have a capacity for them because when, uh, teachers show up, we, we consume them, we eat them, because we're so hungry, because of the poverty. What, what do you mean by you know, that? I, I, um, I don't have a visual. For, uh, you know, for, of, of eating the teachers? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> go to all their workshops, pester them with a million questions, um, uh, be rude around them and interrupt them, and try to get what we want from them. Mm. You know? That's, you know try to tell them how to teach us um, <clears throat> Be, be bossy, treat them as a product, uh, demand answers from them, snapping our fingers at workshops and um, and uh, making them repeat things over and over and over again. Oh, my God. You know? When Stephen came to, Stephen Jenkinson came to our town, like that was the moment, like the most glorious crankiness I'd ever seen where he'd said, he'd, he, 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 he said something. He was kind of sort of riffing magically and there was a, a brief pause and and this woman said, oh, again, like, you know, say it again. And like she was coming from, t 
to me, a place of like deep appreciation. And he turned around, he looked at her, he said, I am not a vending machine. Yeah. And like, like it was, it was kind of shocking and it was very uncomfortable for, for everyone. But I think, you know, what you're like, I, I get the energy of, of the kind of like, you know, you're, you're the, you're the product that I have to consume because I guess, I mean, one, you know, one of the things that I work with, with people a lot, you know, I'm in, I'm now in the sort of health and wellness field and one of the big things people have the problem with is consumption, right? We're, we're sick because we're over consuming and, and that consumption is, serves a very important psychic function, which is to not feel shit, to, to not feel wherever we are impoverished. And I think about yeah. it, you know, typically day to day in very personal individual terms, but you're bringing it like we're all we're all in this like low oxygen atmosphere gasping for whatever the hell we can get our hands on to just make it through the day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's um, and what Stephen, I think, is speaking to in those moments is that the way that he that he's not bulletproof that the way that people look at him and engage with him does something to him. And so if you, again, it's like this this notion in this culture of this cult of the individual, and that there's this essentialized you that is untouchable, so that if you walk through the streets and nobody ever acknowledges you, nobody says hello to you, that that doesn't do anything to you. Or if, you know, in in, in a, when there was the Irish potato famine, a lot of the Irish... Um, went to North America, and some of them went right from Ireland. A lot of them went through Liverpool. So Liverpool, which had you know the slave trade, <coughs> tobacco, sugar, so many brothels, so much prostitution in that city. I think it was like 700 or more. Like, um, so the city that kind of had always um, profited on people's vices started making money on sending the Irish to North America in ships that were like in no way set up for humans. Um, but you know they they'd sell more tickets than there were spaces on the ships, and people get left behind. All this, but you got to imagine that um, you know 1845 to 1847, you have all these Irish people who have just survived the famine, um, which was brutal, and so many hundreds of thousands, if not millions, died uh, as a result of the famine. They survived that. The ones who made it to Liverpool had lived through that. You know these are tough people, and they. Um, still carrying their heads high, still with a certain sense of being nobility, you know, that so many um, indigenous people have of like having descended from, you know, this, this beautiful people. And, and so for so many Irish, there was a sense of like, yeah, we all, de- we all descended from this nobility. And so like, yeah, life got the better of us. Well, yeah, life gets the better of a lot of people, but we're still this. So they survive, they get to Liverpool. And then there's this dynamic that, uh, in retrospective, called the Liverpool Mirror, which was that the Irish were looked at in a similar similar way to how black people are looked at in the States still today, um, and certainly were, I think, even more so in the past, but looked at with this disdain, this disgust, this sense of, like, you're not really human. And that's what destroyed them. That's what destroyed so many of them. The ones who survived, like, famine came, and the way they got looked at shattered them. Um, and so what Stephen is saying is like, yeah, as a teacher, the way that you look at a teacher, the way that you approach them, 
the way that you <coughs> engage with them. And if you snap your fingers, I'm like, again, say it again. Say more about that. Um, like they're a vending machine with no courtesy at all and no eloquence, that it has a consequence for the teacher. But in this culture, we don't tend to see that. We just, you know, there's this, uh, we are, I think, immensely undersold on our own consequentiality as human beings. Just that everything we do, everything we don't do has some consequence, and that most of the consequence of our being alive does not accrue to us. It accrues to other people. I mean, like, I think yourself, myself, everyone listening to this can hopefully relate to uh, we've learned on the backs of others, you know, uh, our our learning has been very expensive to other people. Mm-hmm. All the places that we've messed up in our lives, all the people we've hurt, everyone who's in therapy because of us, <laughs> um, you know, it's been on their backs. And and so we're just so immensely consequential. And, um, of course, everything in this culture hides that from us. We don't have to see the factory where our laptop was made. We don't have to see where the toilet paper comes from or where it goes. We don't throw out our garbage. We don't see what, you know. So we're so removed from um, the consequentiality. But I think that's also part of the poverty because it makes us feel less real. We're less substantial. We don't really see that we're making a difference or not in the world, Um, you know, which is part of where I think this whole Internet trolling thing comes from. No feedback, no consequences. And so we're not that people aren't real and people then feel sort of empowered in this strange way to keep doing that. Whereas you would, they would, most of them would never do that in person. It's so funny. I, I know people who are like these crazy on, online. They're the worst and you meet them and they're all right. Yeah. I'd go for beers with them, but online, some other thing happens because the less consequential, the, the less um, consequential or maybe the less real and substantial we feel the less human we become. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting because when I see someone, you know, misbehaving online, I, what the message I'm getting from them is, you know, whoever they're talking to, you don't matter. But you're saying what they're really feeling is I don't matter. Yeah, right, which is why I'm trying to get significance by doing what I'm doing. And, yeah, there's this deep sense of not mattering. And, you know, I'll tell you, there, there was a friend of mine who... <laughs> Uh, a fellow, she basically had a, a salesman come up to her door who was not a salesman for a company, probably a criminal, casing the joint. A lot of people in her neighborhood had seen him. And she was scared. She was a single woman living alone. And she posted that. And this fellow messaged her, said, what are you, are you nuts? And then used a, a very bad euf- euphemism relating to women. And, you know, here she is vulnerable, scared. And then from a guy, she gets this message saying, like, are you nuts? And calling her this name. And and uh, it was just so devastating for her. But he doesn't have to contend with the consequence of what he did mm. or understand why it would be such a huge thing for her. <laughs> and so she um, posted that on Facebook and was just like, ah, and a bunch of people sent him messages. And I reached out to him and I said, hey, um, do you have a car? Because we're going to go apologize to my friend now. And he was like, oh, I'm not going to get in the car with you. And I was like, well, that's fair. Meet us in a public place. He wouldn't. And... Um, and my friend Laura, she was going to finally write him one more message. And it was a paragraph, and I was like, it's too small. It's got to be more. Because it's actually the, the impact and the consequence of what he did is so big. So much of what's wrong with our culture is right in that one sentence that he sent you. And so we worked on this. It was like a two- or three-page letter together. But we not just sent it to him. We sent it to his family and his girlfriend. And I don't know how it landed, 
but I mean, part of the impulse of that is you're not anonymous. Mm. You know, in um, in Bosnia, when Milosevic was in power, and you know, just the the <coughs> tragedy that was happening, the the protesters um, and the people trying to protect society were realizing they were so outgunned, and that they were going to have to get some of the people in the police and the army to change sides if they were going to win. And so what they did was, instead of attacking them or breaking them, they actually ended up going to their neighbors. They they somehow got the addresses of a lot of police, and they go to their neighbors with photos of what's happening. I was like, do you realize what they're invo- your neighbor is involved in these mass burials? Did you know? You know, And all of a sudden, they weren't. They couldn't hide behind the mask anymore, and a number of them ended up changing sides. And <laughs> so it's like, um, it's so important, this bringing of consequences back and, and burdening people with them and not letting people slide because it's such a it's such a dehumanizing thing for them. It makes them less human. And we need more actual human beings in the world, um, which is questionable if, if most of us are these days. Yeah. So this might be another hour where I, I don't want to do. But um, what, what that brings up for me is this whole sort of debate about safety, uh, you know, for, around words, safety on campus, safety. And sure. you know, so one, of, one of the criticisms is that, you know, the left can't handle anything right. anymore and everything has to yeah. be like and and you're kind of saying like those words mattered and and we're not only going to call him out like i can I, I just sort of had it like when you said you talked to this person and told him he was going you know getting in a car with you and going to apologize i could feel like in my own body the fear oh. that that would bring up in me if i were you sure. and like what yeah. it take to kind of overcome that and overcome the the, the desire to be like nice and and you know, appropriate and, and and friendly and all that stuff. But like, what do you, you know, where, where do you come down on, you know, sort of people who, you know, it's, it's words, it's, it's debate, it's argument. And yet it's, yeah. it's more than that. What, what are your thoughts? Oh, I, don't, I don't know if I've got a very articulately formed thing. I mean, the, the reality is the world is not safe. We might as well start with that. It's just not a safe place at all, um, as evidenced by all of human history. You know, we're like, uh, people die at all ages of all sorts of causes, both, you know, um, peaceful and, and otherwise. <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, the world is, is, is not safe. And our safety fundamentally is not going to ultimately come from controlling the world. That's sure. Um, Safety ultimately ultimately comes from our capacity to be aware of what's happening in the world and to conduct ourselves. Um, so there's that. That feels true for me. And I think what's being asked, I'm not so much asking, um, you know, with my friend there, it wasn't so much for safety, it was for courtesy. And it was for an acknowledgement of, of consequence and to not let the consequences vanish from that situation because at that moment the consequences entirely fell upon my friend and um as a friend of that man's soul i'm not going to let the consequences vanish from him because it's not good for him either is, is my belief but it's good i mean as white people especially as white men who are on the receiving end of so much of the privilege of our times. Again, it's not that white men don't struggle. It's just that we don't <coughs> struggle because we're white. And, you know, 
often not because we're men, though I think I could make more of a case for that. Um, and so there is this power dynamic. There is this reality of the, um, yes, poverty that we have, but also privileges that we have. And so if, uh, you know, it's like the words I say as a white man, there's certain things I would just never say to a woman of color. Um, and I'm going to, I don't know, out of a sense of courtesy, out of a sense of wanting to restore the fabric of the world, <coughs> um, yeah, if, if she feels not great about certain words being said, um, I'm willing to be, you know, flexible around that. Um, knowing that what I represent to her, so out of a immense love and affection, I'm going to, okay, that word is painful for you. I don't need to use it or use it in that way. Um, and it's, um, but I think part of the challenges for a lot of white people when this comes up, we feel like there are one of two options. One is to submit and the other is to rebel, mm-hmm. you know? So I either have to like, oh, you write the, submit and just, I'm just going to drink down the anti-racism Kool-Aid and uh, swallow all the dogma, not really think about it, not push back with it or wrestle with it. I'm just going to that. And in my experience, those people become very tight, very rigid, and very dangerous, Um, particularly to other white people. I've never seen people of color be so vicious to white people as I've seen white people be to white people. (laughs) You know, I think that comes from this certain kind of submission. Like, I'm just going to... give up and and because um, I want to be approved of or <laughs> whatever but then the other one is the rebelling and I think you see a lot of that that's the white nationalist thing like no you can't tell me and it's like just uh, I don't know can we can we have a, a bigger response than this can we can we uh, do something that's not just totally collapsing or, or posturing can we do something that's not just this um, collapsed you know um, victim thing or this bully thing can we do something that's not either of those? Could we actually just, um, even if I don't necessarily believe I'm responsible for the reaction that's happening inside of a woman of color. I didn't put it there myself. It's not me personally. But if I can understand, <clears throat> okay, there's something bigger at work. Can I, can I if, even if I'm not responsible, can I be responsive to it and say, again, that hurts. Okay, I'm listening. And... Um, you know, but part of the challenge is here is that with um, I went to a diversity workshop years ago, and they talked about three levels of identity: individual, universal, and collective. So this idea: individual, you're all a special snowflake; universal, we're all one; and collective, we're a part of different groups. And what struck me years later was how um, so many white people do not have a collective sense of themselves. And where this appears, I've seen it so many times. If and you may have seen this yourself, those of you listening, just start paying attention because you'll notice this. White people's defensiveness um, when there's the kind of rebellious thing showing up, that defensiveness when it appears in conversations around race always sounds the same. And it shows up in one of two ways. Functionally, it's either sounding like, I wasn't there, I didn't own slaves, why are you mad at me, I'm your friend, why are you alienating me, this is a, the individual, personal, or why are you trying to divide us? We're all one. We're all connected. I don't see color, you know, what you started with. And so fundamentally, those are the two responses because white people don't have a collective sense of self. So if a person of color says to a group of white people, y'all need to deal with your racist shit, the only way that can be heard is either as a personal attack on the people there or 
as a confused person of color who does not realize how connected we are. What can't be heard is that they are representing their community and group, and they are speaking to us as a group. And they're not speaking to us, you know, personally. I mean, they're not not speaking to us personally, but they're also speaking through us. They're entrusting us as messengers saying, hey, we're hurting over here as a group, and we want you as a group to know that. But white people do not have a very solid sense of community, so it's hard to even hear any of this stuff around safety as anything other than um, <coughs> these fragile little snowflakes mm. who are needing protection from everything versus we could hear it as this is an uh, expression of immense pain from a group of people. And we might get curious, like, what is that pain about? And maybe, you know, the racism is not, um, the racism shows up in the notion that for so many white people, it's like, well, if I'd gone through that and my ancestors had gone through that, I'd be fine. You know, I'd be okay. So why are they still whining? That's the racism. This, this assumption that somehow as white people, we would, you know, uh, we'd be fine and okay. And so, yeah. So I want to close as as much as possible on sort of, if not a sort of positive, happy note, um, at least on a, uh, an actionable one. And I suspect that like the main, the question I was going to phrase, like, well, what should we do? Is itself Uh like part of the colonized mind? Yeah. But what should we do? (laughs) Oy. Um, I, I think you could do a lot worse than just uh, reading about this. You could do a lot worse than <coughs> starting to learn. Um, get some books. There's plenty of books out there. You know, this is not hard to find. Just Google top ten anti-racism books or top ten books on racism in America. Maybe you could give um, a few, and I'll, I'll I'll post them in the show notes. Sure. Um, Well, I mean, one I'd recommend is, uh, you know, there's one called How the Irish Became White. There's another one um, called uh, How the Jews Became White or uh, something along that lines. There's a great book for those of Scottish ancestry called Warriors of the Word by Michael Newton. Uh, There's another one called The History of White People by Neil Irvin Painter. Um, there's a, if you want to get really deep into the, uh, history of the white race, you can read the invention of the white race by Theodore Allen. Um, you know, are some good starting ones, but it's, um, so there's a couple things to look at. One is, is whiteness and the kind of learning about that and what the consequences of that um, construct have been. But I also, <coughs> I think looking at your own ancestry uh, looking at your own, where do you come from? You know, even if you know the general area and starting to explore that, you know, there are indigenous languages of your own to learn. There are, um, there's deep culture there. There's folktale and folklore and, um, you know, there's so, there's so much there. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I, I love, I love that. And I totally w- wasn't expecting that answer. And it makes so much sense sort of as a bookend, because what I wanted to talk to you about is not like, oh, you know, white, us, us white people, we've done so much shit in the world and we should feel guilty and make up for it. But, but like, it's the most selfish thing we could do is to, like, you've got this disease. We ha- you know, saying that white, white, whiteness is something we need to heal from. And yeah. it's for us, 
yeah, it's, yeah, it's you know, it's, it may save the world from from uh, you know a climate cataclysm. It might you know help other people, but really we're we're doing it to to unimpoverish ourselves to reclaim you know our our own heritage as as authentic humans in in our place. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, and um, tricky words like reclaim again, as if it's still there in the same way. But, um, but certainly, if you believe that you know your ancestors are real, not a figment of your imagination, then there may be a chance to be claimed by them uh, again, and um, or you know for the first time. And and uh, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of work to do. So thanks so much for the opportunity to have a conversation. This is one of the most meaningful, you know, threads of thought in my life and such a pleasure to get to speak about it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. You know, you're uh, you're a huge inspiration to me. You you wrote a piece that I was actually searching for for about 15 minutes today and couldn't find on on, uh, the concept of admiration. Um, oh, sure. I'll, I'll send that your way. Oh, that'd be great. And you know, so, like your writing on these topics is is so good. I'm not even jealous of you. <laughs> <laughs> like there's like you know, I'm a writer, and so I'm very jealous a lot of the time. I hate to admit this of like good writers who who like I think oh I'm, you know like I'm almost there. But the way the way you have woven together, like the, the amount of time you spent thinking and researching and doing and being and leading kind of ferociously you know you're you're like a sweet loving guy and yet you really have a warrior spirit around you and it comes out in in the way you you communicate and and show up at least on on my side of the internet screen and i'm so grateful for all the work you do and for everything you've shared here today thank you so much That's, that's encouragement to keep going all right. Well, thanks again, and uh, I, I look forward to continuing to, to learn from you. Well, and likewise. Take care. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. For more information about the Big Change Program, led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 192. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 191 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. That's where you can also sign up for the weekly-ish email newsletter. Thanks to Plant Yourself podcast patrons, Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Elizabeth Clifton, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Breath, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Vilkanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah, ah, I had it, I had it. Let's go back to Stu. Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis rhymes with circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, and Tom Franzak for your generous support of the podcast. And welcome to all the new podcast listeners who have found me through the Engine 2 7-Day Challenge. 
guys are awesome. I had so much fun doing my very first Facebook Live event. I managed to overcome my fear of the technology, stared at my little phone, and blabbed for about an hour. Let me put a link to that in the show notes as well. Thanks also to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. If you'd like to support this show, you can share this and other episodes on social media and via email. You can write a review on iTunes, and you can become a patron by pledging a one-time amount or ongoing gift to the podcast over at plantyourself.com. Of course, you can also tell everybody about the Big Change program so I can make an honest dollar. (laughs) In garden news, we've had a deep freeze here. We were down to 5 Fahrenheit this morning, so I suspect that everything is dead. I did manage to do a, a, a final kale and bok choy run which i made into a giant pot of greens that we gobbled up rather quickly but it looks like unless uh, our kale is lazarus flavored that we will not be getting anything else out of the garden until the spring in running news likewise i have not felt like face planting so i have not done a ton of running instead i've been doing indoor workouts i've been doing um, rowing and a little shout out to my friend and mentor, Glenn Murphy, over at ncsystema.com. He has a 21-day Jason Bourne challenge complete with daily workouts, and I'm going to be getting in at least three of those this evening before I go to bed. You can quote me on it. All right, that's it for this week. So as always, be well, my friends.